Well, hey, Chris. Hey, John. Do you feel like podcasting today? Sure. You know, I kind of want to get right into it because there's a lot to talk about. What we've been doing this season is we've been choosing a classic spinoff to compare to Better Call Saul Mm -hmm. just to see if it's really as good of a spinoff as we think it is. And I'd like to say our results thus far this season have been interesting, educational maybe. Yeah. Yeah, it's it's interesting. Uh, What we've been doing is choosing our spinoff challengers kind of at random. I took a desktop globe and I decoupaged the names of classic spinoffs over the names of the cities of the world. And so now what we do is we spin the globe, put our finger down, whatever we've landed on becomes the spinoff that will challenge Better Call Saul that week. So to get this episode started, we have to spin the globe. You want to do the honors? Well, I mean, I, I guess, but it's, I, I do want to just say that I'm getting kind of bugged with the globe because it's not really giving us the classic spinoffs. We, I mean, it's neat that it's all over the place, but uh, it seems like we've only got a few episodes of the season left, and we need to compare Better Call Saul to some good classic spinoffs that people think of as some of the better shows that have ever been made. Uh, you know, like, say, Andy Griffith or Laverne and Shirley or the Jeffersons. These are, these are big spinoffs that were big shows, and it's giving us kind of a random sampling and that's neato, but I just I don't know how we're gonna we're gonna ever get to uh, compare it to any real classic spinoffs uh, if we if we keep with this system. So I, I just wanted to voice that there are names on this globe like Frasier, the Jeffersons, your beloved Laverne and Shirley is on there. I mean, they, they, these are classic shows that everyone agrees are classic, and they are on here. So it's, there's always a possibility. Okay, so frankly, you just haven't been putting your finger down on the right places. I guess if this is your complaint, right? So, I mean, it's spin up to chance. You take a chance, you spin the globe, you get what you get. Well, I mean, it's not my fault for not randomly choosing the right spot, but you, why don't you be the spinner this week? And 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 you're right. Maybe we'll get something better if, you're, if, if you put your finger down on it. I don't want to get all hippy-dippy on you, Chris, but sometimes I think there's a certain power in just believing something. Believing something is good. I believe this globe is a good idea. I believe this has been a great season of our podcast. Yeah. So I have a lot of faith. That whatever it lands on will be something that we enjoy talking about. Something good. Okay, come on, something good. Let's go. All right, no whammies, no whammies, no whammies. And. Oh. All right, what what does it say? What? Baywatch Nights. All right, we're throwing out the globe. And we're back. We've seen the latest Better Call Saul. We've also seen the pilot episode of Baywatch Nights. And we've also seen the first episode of Baywatch Nights' second season, for reasons that we will get into later. Before we proceed with this episode, I feel like I need to ask Chris, are you still speaking to me? (laughs) Yeah, I'm here. But yeah, having to watch two episodes of Baywatch Nights was uh, not the best thing. But yeah, um, you know, let's talk about Saul. So Over 30 years of friendship. And I think this might have been the greatest test. Yeah, you're pushing it. As for Better Call Saul, I do want to remind people that in an upcoming episode, we're going to be responding to their comments and questions and thoughts about how we're doing. So let's get that stuff in, folks. Email us at saulsearching at gmail.com or find us on Twitter at saul underscore searching. That's also a great way just to stay abreast of whatever we're doing with the show. So that is that. Let's dive into Better Call Saul. This was the seventh episode of the fourth season. We only have three left after this one. 
This episode, which was called Something Stupid, the name being a reference to the song that was used in the episode, but also it feels to me like a a callback to the earlier episode this season, Something Beautiful, which was, I believe, the third episode of the season. Yeah. What I really wanted to mention about this was it was written and directed by a first-time writer for the show and a first-time director for the show. So the writer is Allison Tatlock and the director is Deborah Chow. Hmm. It seemed like a very strong entry, as long as we are accepting that any given episode is only going to push the larger arcs forward so much. But the, the individual moments we got in this episode, to me, were were revealing and great. What did you think of Something Stupid? I thought it was a good episode. It was definitely a, a forward-moving uh, story and uh, uh, made me feel excited about about what's happening on the show. Jimmy and Kim's relationship, both in terms of their personal romantic connection and also now they're sort of working together to help Huel, that's huge in terms of how they're going to deal with each other in an ongoing way for life. This is this is just uh, potentially uh, really big and, and crazy. This was not a case of Jimmy strong-arming her into bending the law or into doing something potentially risky to help him. This was a case of Kim out of perhaps misplaced loyalty to Jimmy, actually coming up with a plan that she thinks will keep him out of trouble, perhaps. But it, it was interesting how much they put that ball in Kim's court in this episode. Yeah. At the end of the episode, when when they split up and we followed her instead of him, it was it was like a subtle shift in storytelling. And then the fact that that she clearly is thinking like Jimmy. She's thinking probably thinking, how can I stop him from causing problems? But uh, she's an active participant in that and not just somebody saying, Jimmy, I can't do this. I can't, I can't help you. Yeah, and we don't know what her plan is yet, but it definitely uh, is worrisome to, uh, to wonder. Well, let's, let's double back on some of those steps that brought us to this point that we've been talking about, which is really kicked off with this cold open that has got to be one of the best bits of filmmaking I've seen in a while. Um, it was really bold and daring to do the split screen and sort of let the two sides of the screen interact with each other and then showing how they diverge. Just seeing Jimmy and Kim's story told that way, using brushing your teeth at the same time, and uh, kind of looking at each other in the mirror, using that as a, as a symbol of cohabitual bliss. Mm-hmm. And then showing how as that routine gets shifted and as these two people grow apart because of what their day looks like, mm-hmm. you started to see the pain in that separation even as you're seeing that it's happening over time. Um, and saying that it's happening over time, I would say the most brilliant thing about it was it addressed something that you and I have talked about off mic, definitely. I don't know if we've talked about it on the podcast or not, but just this notion of Jimmy not being able to practice law. Right. I think we actually said at some point, are they going to spend a whole season where Jimmy can't practice law? That seems like a long time to wait. However, this show does move at such a glacial pace through some of these plot developments that it almost seemed like it would be too tempting for them not to say, can we have a whole season exist in this in-between period? Mm-hmm. You can't even call him a lawyer this season because the story has always proceeded pretty much at the same pace since this show began. Right. And yet in this one very elegant, very beautifully made, very poignant, very funny in a way, very heartbreaking in a way uh, montage at the beginning of this episode, they they also achieved the time jump, which I thought was ingenious. It definitely puts you at a much closer time uh, than we were just wondering, like, is this going to be another uh, 10 episodes before they even say he could be a lawyer. We had uh, no idea how they were going to deal with that. And I think you had sort of expressed that uh, if they did a big time jump, you were afraid that that would not be good. But they did it in such a uh, uh, you know a cool way that felt graceful, and it sounds like you liked it. 
But it wasn't that I worried that it wouldn't be good. My question was, how can they do that without breaking the format of the show? Yeah. Um, and the way they did it was using one of the show's most formidable weapons, which is a, 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 an inventive montage. Right. And it's amazing how many details were in that montage. I watched it a second time just to make sure I was I was watching the Jimmy bits I had missed when I was watching Kim and the Kim bits I had missed when I was watching Jimmy. Right. It is confusing for your eyeballs. Each one of these shots is telling us something about time passing mm-hmm. for these characters. Yeah, they show us the uh, uh, the time passage via his, his uh, uh, going to see the PPD officer every month, and we see the date on that, and we see that she is... Uh, helping to facilitate the building of more and more branches of Mesa Verde, so we know that uh, time is passing and passing. And we also learned that he uh, got some business cards uh, that say Saul on them. So that's a, a milestone, too. Yeah, it really was. And and again, kind of a goosebump moment. Mm-hmm. For Kim, this has been a period of ascendance. And for Jimmy, this has been a holding pattern um, with a lot of repetition. The, the only real differentiation seems to be different tracksuits on different days. <laughs> right. But And then also, of course, the heartbreaking part is just watching as it seems like boy, these p- two people are on different tracks. They don't really have meaningful interaction a lot. And then the final moment when she comes to bed and he opens his eyes and just sort of has a look on his face that, you know, I don't know what different people... Uh, would glean from it, but to me, it sort of said like, "Huh, oh, she, she didn't even say a word or kiss me goodnight in any way." And uh, here we are. Well, she didn't throw her leg over him like she did in the previous scene of them right. in bed, and he didn't turn and kiss her or put his arm on her or and say goodnight or anything like that. That might have felt like he was trying to connect to her, and then seeing her fade out as he lay there, it did center the narrative back on him, right? Um, and then later when we see him kind of mixing with her co-workers at Schreckert and Coakley, it was such a great illustration of of that difference right now because she is part of this team compared to, for instance, I mean, they did a great job of visually representing her fortunes versus Jimmy's because he's 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 measuring the, the office uh, in steps. Right. Little things like that you can tell are weighing on him. I like that scene, the way it showed Jimmy's gifts with a crowd mm-hmm. and then how that can curdle into something he's just sort of stirring things up when he was kind of talking his way through the different options that that schweikert could could bankroll right for the the company retreat i felt like he uh was just making a fool of rich by making rich look cheap by talking more and more about these uh expensive ideas right right after rich said you don't want to look cheap you know uh, so, and, and he's doing this even while he, Jimmy is poor, you know, so it's a, it's a pretty weird, uh, dynamic to, to get into, but, uh, thinking about, you know, what's behind it, I feel like Jimmy is resentful of, of Rich for, uh, taking his girlfriend away. You know, she was on a track to be in a law office with him and she left for Rich and he kind of wants to, uh. Uh, stick it to Rich in some way here. So now it's coming out. Right. In a way that even Kim can see is sort of maladaptive um, and not be in on the joke. I think she would support Jimmy up to a point with his needling of Rich, you know? Right, but it had Um, no good effect. All it does is make Kim look bad. Right. It makes her look like, on some level, you know, hey, Kim, you're 
your boyfriend's off the chain, you know. Right. But didn't it seem like the crowd was was laughing at Schweikart with him in a way? Right. It seemed like they were a little bit on Jimmy's side, but maybe some of it also was nervous laughter of like, uh, ooh, I, I, I know that uh, this is probably making Schweikart squirm, and so uh, I'm just going to chuckle and try to move along with my day here. And then Kim in the car, the smash cut to them silently in the car and her saying, well, that was something. <laughs> it was just perfect. Right, and he turns on the radio to get to get out of it. In a way that feels like a teenager, though. I mean, it was great that there was, I think it was a Breeders song on the radio that seemed like it, to me, symbolized sort of teen angst when he, right. when he cranked up the radio. So that was that was great. Yeah. For now, let's 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 cover some of our other characters who don't have quite as much to do in this episode. Um, the scene with Hector this week to me was eminently more interesting than the scene last week, um, even though as I was careful to say, I thought that the scene with Gus's monologue was really well done. It just seemed kind of dramatically inert to me. And this week, every scene with Gus or Hector that had to do with their storyline did inch things forward a little bit. But um, no, I thought this was a, I thought this was a, this was a really cool episode for that. Just showing the, this point in the Gus Hector relationship, it became a lot more interesting to me now that Hector is uh, uh, somewhat lucid and able to give clues as to what's going on in his mind versus just uh, a guy laying on a bed. Right. Well, that was uh, exciting, but the the main thing was what a huge reveal it is when we learn that that uh, Gus decided now is the time to stop letting Hector improve, uh, that's really big for Breaking Bad watchers to go like, oh, wow, that condition that Hector was in all that time might have been better if if not for Gus's decision that we we can leave him right here. I've kept you from your work long enough. Oh. It is time to delegate Mr. Salamanca's care. His recovery has been remarkable. And my... Gratitude to you is beyond words. Are you sure? Hector's progress is very promising. With sustained intensive care, he may eventually learn how to talk and even walk again. Perhaps we should temper our expectations. I believe the pilot marina is ready. I agree with you 100%. The reveal that Gus is responsible for Hector's sort of halted recovery um, and for Hector's continued state of being trapped is chilling and dark and does a nice job of underscoring all those qualities we kind of like about Gus uh, with this true evil. Right. Gus kind of decided like, okay, you're at a point where you can say yes and no and you... Uh, have your libido a little bit, uh, but you should stop right there and only have those things, and everything else is is just frozen. Hector's one of those characters that they always remind you that he's loathsome on some level, yeah, you know? Right. Even though at this point he's about as sympathetic as he can be to us because he is a guy who has been victimized. But we can remember that when he, you know, when he was walking around, he was not nice. Hector's recovery is also a sign of the time jump. Right. And so is... The giant cavern underneath the laundry place uh, when we catch up with the Germans in the next scene. Right. So I was kind of having to remind myself throughout this episode, oh, yeah, we've we've skipped over the better part of a year. Right. I kind of felt like this time jump might have been coming because uh, uh, just knowing, oh, they're about to 
build this giant cavern, and Jimmy's got this job that's a boring job that you have to go to every day. Those things to me said, oh, this might be a great time to skip forward. I thought they might skip forward four months or something. I guess they skipped forward like eight months or something, uh, uh, which is great because now we're coming up on when he's going to get his license back, and who knows uh, exactly what the circumstances of that will be at that time, but that seems uh, like a, a really interesting moment for the show. But anyway, yeah, good good way to uh, give us another indicator that we've we've leapt forward in time is, is now there's a, a giant hole underneath the laundry. Well, I mean, now Kim is established at Schweikert and Coakley, and all these Mesa Verde branches have opened, seemingly without a hitch. Right. Uh, now there's a giant hole. Now Hector has made all this progress. Now Jimmy's about to get his license back. It's really only in looking back that I can see how each of those plot lines was set to a point where jumping forward allows you to explore the possibilities of something that you wouldn't get to if you didn't jump forward. Right. But I like the way Hewell's character got some screen time and, and got to do a little something that I didn't expect at all. And boy, when that situation popped up, I was glad that it was just hitting a guy with a bag of sandwiches and then he gets up. I pictured this escalating into something really, really bad with the cop. Right. It definitely could have. But luckily for Hewell, it didn't. But it still uh, makes Hewell a big part of the story going forward here. Uh, whatever's going to go on with his case seems like a, uh, a really big deal to me plot wise. Come on, you'll have a warrant on you. And that shit doesn't go away. You know, three years from now, you're pulled over for a broken taillight. And now you're not just a guy who shoved a cop. You're a guy who shoved a cop and ran. I just want to drive with a broken taillight. Sooner or later, they're going to catch up with you. He didn't get D.B. Cooper. Why don't you, uh, why don't you give me a, a shot at this? I, I think I can fix it. Yeah. Yeah. What if I told you you're not going in? Like, not at all. Not never. Because that's what it's going to take. Yeah. Never. Right? Just don't skip. How are you going to do that? You ain't even a lawyer. A lawyer. Dude. I don't need to be a lawyer, right? <laughs> I'm a magic man. You have a little faith in me? Sometimes we, we bemoan the slow burn storytelling and sometimes we savor it. Yeah. But this was a great example of small, seemingly insignificant occurrences kind of piling up to be this right. big moment where Jimmy is in Kim's office, hat in hand almost, asking for her help. Right. He comes to her for help and, and uh, wants her to... Uh, help this this guy I, I presume she's never heard of uh but now she's in a position where she's trying to help people and likes being a public defender and so of course she's going to kind of say all right I'll I'll help you on that that mission but his plan is so awful and typical of Jimmy's trickery I found that just wonderful and scary uh that he wants to go after the cop and and tear him down as an alcoholic, and he, he says, I've got some ideas about how to make that happen, about, like, making the cop kind of slip in the courtroom physically or something. I don't know. It just sounds uh, awful, and it really, uh, you know, stunned Kim to see that he still thinks that way. She kind of kind of took a moment of, like, oh, my God, uh, but then said, all right, I'll, I'll help you, but we're not doing that. The progression of that was very... 
fun. There's a moment where she's leaving and saying, just tell Huel he can't run. Yeah. That whatever you do, don't run. Whatever we do for him, it can't be done with him in the wind making it worse for himself, you know? Right. Tell him to stick around and face the music and we will help. And you can tell Jimmy is not hiding at all the fact that he's not really going to follow what she said. Like every time she's like, no, but make, make it clear he can't run. And he's like, okay, yeah, I'll let him know what you said. <laughs> and she's like, no, Jimmy, you've got to be straight with him about this. And then he said, you do your thing and I'll do mine, you know? Right, and we don't know what his thing is. But what I thought was great was following Kim at this moment. First I thought, oh, we're watching her to see how disappointed she is. And it felt kind of down. His charm has worn off on her and she's now thinking Jimmy is just a fuck up. Mm-hmm. And then you see her doing the math in her head of who she's dealing with and what he might do. Right. She suddenly realized, no, I have to intervene. And in the second of thinking that, she seemed to have one of these epiphanies that we do associate with Jimmy, with uh, Walter White on Breaking Bad, the moment when the character has an idea and we don't know what it is yet. Right, right. But it seems to involve a bunch of multicolored pins. I know, and I kept thinking, what could that possibly be? I'm really looking forward to seeing the resolution of that. I hope, I, I trust with this writing team, they've cooked up something kind of arcane and interesting and weird. We've just been assuming there's going to be this parting of the ways and that she's going to have some problems. And if that's, if that's brought on by some scheme of Jimmy's, it's cool that she's diving in rather than being dragged in. Yeah, but it's so tragic to see that, you know, she could be doing something a little tricky to keep him from doing something very tricky. But then she could get in trouble for doing something a little tricky, and she could get in very bad trouble. I mean, I've always thought her loyalty to Jimmy is an intriguing characteristic, because she is a high-functioning, very serious woman. Yes. That kind of protectiveness, or, or at least her affection for Jimmy, I like how it came out in that scene where she was talking to her colleague, the prosecutor, uh, who's intending to just nail heel down. This is unequal justice. In this case, the officer was not injured at all. He was hit with a bag of sandwiches. How can you justify giving Babineau 18 months? Close a year. He has no history of violence. There is no negotiation here, Kim. And honestly, I don't understand why you want anything to do with this. On one side, I've got a decorated police officer doing his job. On the other, you have a professional thief who threw him to the ground. And our only witness is a scumbag, disbarred lawyer who peddles drop phones to criminals. You don't know the whole story. Seeing that that is the way that the legal profession would perceive Jimmy, yeah, I thought was very bracing for Kim, both in the sense of kind of engaging her protectiveness of this person she cares about, but also making her confront, oh my God, that is what Jimmy is. Yes, I loved how awful that was, and it perfectly crystallized <laughs> who your boyfriend is. And you're on the right track and you're hanging out with this guy. And it really shut Kim up, you know, because here she's in this argument and she's doing okay, holding her own. And then she has this line about a a scumbag disbarred lawyer and she kind of has to stop in her tracks and turn around and walk out. It was rough. I agree with you that she was crestfallen, but I didn't see it so much as like shut up in this terminal way, so much as shut up in a tactical way of going, okay, there's nothing further to be gained here. Like having an argument on the internet with someone about politics, at some point you just have to disengage because you're not going to convince them. Right, but she's the reason she's not going to convince her is because she can't come back and uh, take apart that description of Jimmy. She can't say, no, he's great in this way, this way, and that way, and you don't know how awesome he is, she instead is like, okay, that's 
that's what you think of Jimmy, and it's sort of true, so I have to be done. But she does. She says, you don't know the whole story before she walks out. So, uh, yeah, maybe that's her way of sort of coming back at it a little bit, but, you know, can't really argue too hard. She's always had that salt, though. She's always had that salt when dealing with Chuck or, or Howard or anybody who wants to disregard Jimmy. The same part of her that wants maybe to help the people who need help in terms of being a public defender. Maybe that's the same part of her that doesn't want to see someone call Jimmy mm. a scumbag, knowing that he's more than that. Right. But I also think it's significant that we know that this prosecutor does not buy the truth. We know the truth is that a plainclothes policeman who had driven up in an unmarked car was having an altercation with a man, and the, the man's friend walked up and thought he was helping his friend. And he swung a bag of sandwiches at him. He didn't mm-hmm. pull a gun. He didn't... I mean, any of the things that I thought might have happened that would have been way worse um, and would have implicated Jimmy more, uh, those things didn't happen. But it was still very bad. I mean, we all understand. You don't hit a cop. Right. That does erode the idea that this this other lawyer is supposed to be some kind of truth teller. I think we're supposed to see that she's she's myopic and blinded, uh, just like anybody would be, I guess, by their own their own agenda. Therefore, it's more exciting that Kim's reaction is to to double down with Jimmy instead of to turn on him. Right. When he's attacked, she wants to defend him harder. I did like Jimmy saying that he was a magic man when he was talking to Huell, but also kind of knowing that those are empty words at that point. Mm-hmm. Um, and I liked Huell saying that they never caught D.B. Cooper. Right. When he's talking about going on the run. Yeah. What I'm wondering is, do you think we have any way of knowing what Kim's plan is yet? It's just a total mystery? Like, what could the markers be? Any ideas? I do have an idea, but it sounds kind of silly, and I'm not betting on this. It's just something that came to me uh, looking at all the markers. If they have anything to do with her with her I have a better way claim. Could turn out that they don't. But anyway, if they do, then maybe the thought is like, I'm not going to tear down a police officer, uh, but I could build up Huel. So we get a bunch of cute markers and various forms of stationery, and we forge a whole bunch of, uh, I don't know, letters from orphans about the wonderful character of Huell and how he comes and brings us Christmas presents uh, every year. You know, something that is is a tricky thing to do, but it's not as awful as making a cop look uh, drunk on the stand. Uh, but it's still something you can definitely uh, get in trouble for. It's possible that Kim just wants to huff markers, like she wants to go hang out behind a dumpster with Jimmy and huff markers. <laughs> right, and she's like, I have a better way. <laughs> Inhaling markers. And now... Chris, the spinoff of Baywatch, which was a show I never watched. I don't know if you really watched Baywatch. I feel like it was on and people watched it ironically, but I never kind of got into it. Right. I would give it the cursory glance to see what the big deal was. And I would say, wow, this really is uh, not a quality show. And uh, but it was, you know, it was obvious why people would tune in. But uh, uh, I certainly did not love it. Well, if you didn't love Baywatch, you probably really wouldn't have liked the spinoff, Baywatch Nights, <laughs> which, if anything, is a vanity project for David Hasselhoff based around the idea that at least David Hasselhoff was fully convinced of, 
that David Hasselhoff is really cool. You know, some people think the beach closes after the sun goes down. Uh-uh. That's when it really starts to heat up, especially if you're a PI. Now, I know what you're thinking. Mitch is a lifeguard. What does he know about being a PI? Well, uh, they both involve rescuing people. Turns out my best friend Garner went partners in a bankrupt detective agency with a beautiful brunette PI who left New York for the California sun and adventure. What can I say? When someone yells help, I jump in with both feet. And I hope you do too, as we introduce a new series of private eye adventures called Baywatch Nights. Sit back and enjoy the ride. I don't know who loved this show or wanted this show more than David Hasselhoff. <laughs> right. It's kind of like, uh, uh, let's take uh, Baywatch, which is uh, so successful because of all these uh, curvaceous women running down the beach, constantly curvaceous women, constantly running down the beach. And uh, let's take that part out and see how we do uh, without them. David Hasselhoff is going to narrate it. David Hasselhoff is going to sing the theme song. <laughs> well, along with Lou Rawls. Right, but I just mean it's got it's just dripping with Hasselhoff. Right. We should make it clear that as a spinoff of Baywatch, it took the character of Mitch Buchanan, threw him in with these other characters, one of which is his friend. He was a character on Baywatch, his mm-hmm. friend Garner, uh-huh. who spun off with Mitch onto this show. They also bring in Angie Harmon as another detective who's going to help out with these cases. So it's like the three of them, Garner, uh, Angie Harmon's character, and Mitch Buchanan <laughs> are working out of an office that they're setting up and they don't know how to use the phones yet or, you know, the filing system is wackadoo and all this stuff is very, it's very piloty in terms of them trying to set up this notion of this, this uh, ragtag bunch. Right, but their idea of comedy is to have these people be complete bumbling idiots who can't work their own phones or file things in any way that any 10-year-old would be able to do, uh, and I guess they just think, this will be funny. Hello? Hello? L.B. McBride Buchanan. Alphabetical. Alphabetical. Um, hello? 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 It's the blinking one, Mr. Ellerby. They are all blinking, Miss McBride. Hello? It really results hello, in, like, order? showing our heroes as as utter morons. It's really, it's an odd uh, thing for a detective show. I guess Baywatch... It had a certain amount of comedy, and they're just trying to bring that over, but, uh, you know, it wasn't uh, good comedy. I knew that Baywatch was cheesy. Even though I didn't watch it, I knew that it was cheesy and kind of knowingly cheesy, and that it had a lot of that same kind of thing that something like Saved by the Bell or something like that would have, maybe 90210 would have, where anyone who really loves it, they have to be enjoying the sort of fondue experience of just dipping themselves in cheese when they're watching it. Right. I don't know how many people loved the intense drama of Baywatch, but it is very campy in Baywatch nights. Like it has gone over into full goofball zone when you got Mitch Buchanan falling back in his chair and landing on the floor Yeah. and and looking up and saying, damn, we're good. With like a stupid grin on his face. I, I didn't even know what that moment was meant to convey. Right. What is that? What he does that is so unique and so special is that every shot that he's in he somehow makes it cheesier by virtue of his choices as an actor um you know when he turns to leave a room he turns in a funny quick brisk way when he when he laughs at a joke that's written into the script he goes like ha ha <laughs> yeah <sighs> damn we're good i mean maybe they maybe it's more self-aware than i think but i think even if they think they're doing something campy even within that, they're not aware of, of how truly campy and cheesy it is. Does that does that ring true to you? Yeah, it, that's that's the definition of cheesy, I think, is when you're unaware 
that the drama you're trying to create is humorous instead of dramatic, that it's not landing with everyone else, but it's landing in your own mind. So that's where where he is. And here's something I, I think we compare to uh, Better Call Saul. Uh, both shows like to do uh, musical montages. Um, in Baywatch Nice, they're just a total nuisance because it'll be some horrible pop song and and the montage is just to show you something goofy and annoying whereas on Better Call Saul they pick a good song and you get surprises throughout the montage of, of developing what's happening uh, and uh, so it's a well-made thing. The montages on uh, on Baywatch Nights and this might be true of Baywatch as well. It's like when they go to a montage um it becomes a really low rent version of of someone's idea of music video editing. Right, right. They slow it down. They they throw on a filter. They 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 bring in this music that it seems much more like an attempt to pad the runtime than it really is any kind of storytelling device or any kind of visual inventiveness. Like you're talking about with the montages on 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 Better Call Saul. And it I don't know if you began to get a sense of the '90s from this that that was sort of like oh yeah when you were in the '90s they didn't feel like a thing. But when you when you look back at the '90s, they were such a thing. <laughs> I still feel a little fuzzy on on the '90s. It doesn't have as clear to me of a of a uh, style guide as our other favorite decades. Well, I mean, I would agree with you, but there's a scene where he's wearing a tux with a a loud purple kind of paisley print vest underneath it, and then he chases a guy with a goatee. And as they fight, they knock over a rack of mirrored sunglasses and, and then a big pile of boxes of rollerblades. Right. If you don't feel the 90s from that. The 90s are like the 80s with uh, black added year by year more and more until at some point in the 90s, the coolest outfit was all black. Uh, but leading up to that, there's this period of like, hmm, that, yeah, that looks pretty 80s-y, but with a bunch of black thrown in. Uh, not not just in like the color of clothes, but also in the uh, style of color correcting films and so on. But you know, they always say about decades. If you do look at that kind of arbitrary change that we might see over a period of decades, like the '60s don't really resemble the '60s until the mid '60s. And this show, I believe, was made in 1995 and was aired in 1996. So, um, you know, the eight, it's still we still had a big '80s hangover at right, this point. Right. So. It's kind yeah. of a mix of 80s cheese with 90s attempts right. at at maybe, you know, the beginnings of this snark and irony that really flourished in yeah. the late 90s. So, Well, the only thing I have to say that we haven't said about uh, the first episode, the very first episode of Baywatch Nights, uh, is I got a couple of good ideas uh, for fight moves out of it. Um, the Creeper guy has, uh, if you're on the beach and somebody's coming at you to fight... What you can do is pick up a passing bicyclist off of their bike and throw it onto your opponent. Grab a wimpy bicyclist yep. and use him as a human projectile. That's yes, right. Yes, yes. And then another similar move that you can do is when somebody's uh, trying to chase you down the boardwalk, you grab a hold of a passing rollerblader and roll her at your opponent. <laughs> and they'll collide while you run away. Just utilizing the people around you. Yes, this, def- this show definitely had Jackie Chan levels of, uh, of elaborate <laughs> stunt choreography. <laughs> well, yeah, maybe not quite. As the storyline wraps up, we see that Mitch has been a complete dupe and uh, he got played 
by this uh, by this model, and a man has been killed, a man named Grimes. It's basically the story of Mitch trying to be a detective and then being about as unprofessional about it as possible. But at the end, he, then he says, oh, she fooled me, but that won't happen again, and then he fools her, and that's when he nabs her. I didn't do any of that, Mitch. I swear. This is your cell phone. We're going to press redial. Yeah, it's Grimes. I'm gone. Leave a message. Grimes? <laughs> he has a name. You know, I couldn't figure out why you would go through a dead man's pockets. Unless you were hoping to find something before the police did. Like his ID. What are you trying to do? You killed Alexa. Grimes was a sleazeball. But he wasn't stalking you. He was just blackmailing you. Me? I'm the sucker you hired for an alibi. After a season, they decided to completely retool. And that's what brings us to our decision to watch the first episode of season two because, uh, for reasons that we have discussed, they were floundering. The show was not doing great. But then rather than cancel it, they said, I've got an idea. Season two, instead of regular detective work, it's, uh, it's like a big X-Files ripoff. Every week, they're going to find a monster. Since we had an unsuccessful first season, let's slash the budget and then come up with stories that require a lot of effects. <laughs> and I think this is a good strategy for any show, though. You know, if you're on your last season, you're on your last legs, uh, and you're not sure what to do, you know, Dukes of Hazard could have done this. Just like, okay, now it's Creature of the Week. Um, All in the Family could have done this. You know, instead of like going to like, hey, he's got a bar now, and it's Archie Bunker's place, and we're going to follow what happens at the bar. You know, they could have said, it's it's Monster of the Week. He's going to deal with aliens. He's going to deal with ghosts. Except this is Mitch Buchanan's place. And in this first episode, he deals with a an angry merman god. From New Guinea. It's called the Ajogan. Ajogan. The first season of Baywatch Nights ended as a detective show, and this season picked up with... A couple of cast members gone and uh, a couple of new cast members thrown in instead of Garner, his friend who was a cop on Baywatch, who was his partner on the first season of Baywatch Nights. That character's gone from the show and in his place seems to be Diamond Teague, a guy who I think is a cop, but he's also some kind of paranormal expert. I couldn't quite tell what that guy's role was supposed to be. We are now in the world where Mitch Buchanan is talking about creatures it, sh- it showed him scoffing at it and at the end being like i don't know what it was but i know i saw something but the way they just instantly had characters starting to talk about this edjogan and this idea of of cryptozoological oddities and creatures it just felt like such a funny clumsy way to suddenly say this is the world where these things could happen yeah well yeah I'm, i mean i guess it's the fact that you weren't doing this all last season and then all of a sudden you're gonna say oh your partner is uh uh, a weird, mysterious man who trudges through the Nepalese highlands or whatever, you know, however they set him up is like, he's a mystery person who knows about the paranormal. And then, uh, very like uh, Fox Mulder, as soon as he hears a little bit about what's going on, uh, there's a woman who who uh, uh, was rescued. She almost drowned on her sailboat, and then she said a jogan. 
the guy immediately is like, you know, that's a monster from New Guinea, and they say it's a demon who can steal your soul, you know, whatever his story is. They jump right to that, and then you have to immediately go like, oh, okay, I guess that's what it is. Let's talk about the woman you rescued. The word she kept repeating, a jogan. Do you know what that is? In life, every culture has one. A legendary creature which is the embodiment of all that is evil. The Ajogun is from New Guinea, the fiercest creature from the fiercest culture on the planet. Legend has it that the Ajogun inhabits the jungle along the Parari River. When a boat strays too close to shore, the Ajogun leaps from the trees, savagely killing everything on board. Boats would be found adrift near the mouth of the river. No crew. Where are you going with this? I think that woman's from the Argos Zed. The freighter that sank. It had a melee crew. She's melee. Maybe the captain's wife. It sank three weeks ago. People have been known to survive in trapped air pockets. A week, maybe. Three weeks, no way. Well, on top of that, the fact that Angie Harmon's character, uh, Ryan, later in the episode, um, she's able to sort of instantly find out all this information about this Ajogan character. And it's just reported as though it's factual. It's as though you were to read some website that reports Bigfoot news and just instantly believe it. You know, that's the way it's treated. It's like, well, the facts about Ajogan are. Right. And it was funny to me when, when Mitch goes in to uh, investigate this wreck, Mitch and Griff, and they find a medallion, this gold medallion that's like half of a sun, looks like a crescent moon with sun rays coming off of it. And they describe it over walkie-talkie to Angie Harmon's character up on the boat, and she draws a rather accurate <laughs> version of it based on what they said. I didn't think uh-huh. that they described it that well. She drew it. And then she's able to take that drawing and look it up online and be like, I found something. It was so weird to me that she never saw it. And she's like, well, guys, I've got the facts on this medallion. It is connected to a Jogan, the mythical creature. Right. It's this crazy leap into the unknown uh, that, again, I'm not complaining about. I just think it's funny that they just so boldly shifted what the idea behind the show was, that it wasn't based in reality at all. It's based in this other world. And I wonder, how did that affect Baywatch? Were there ever sea monsters on Baywatch? No, no, but I read about this, that um, that after Baywatch Nights ended and they came back to Baywatch, there was some goofy reference wherein, uh, I think on an episode of Baywatch, something weird happens and some characters joke, well, maybe it's a ghost or whatever, they're, they're, whatever they say, and that then David Hasselhoff is like, okay, guys, this isn't X-Files, or, or some, re- this isn't the Twilight Zone, I don't know what he says, but he, he makes a cute quip that sort of lets the viewers know, oh, they decided Baywatch Nights was a failure, and now they're going to pretend it didn't happen. I guess a lot of X-Files episodes had a similar thing where they really were spreading a budget very, very thin, and they, didn't able, they weren't able to do much, and things were kind of drawn out. But this felt spectacularly repetitive and incoherent, the way that this storyline was drawn out in the middle. That once they get to that shipwreck, there's about, in, a, in an episode that was 37 minutes long without commercials, and that includes a, a long opening sequence and a long ending credit sequence. Mm-hmm. Um, and this episode had about 20 minutes that took place with Mitch and Griff roaming around nondescript, you know, closely shot scenes of them in this in the the hold of a ship, but really a lot of just jumbled uh, scenery that they reused a lot of to create the impression that they're going through different rooms. But it was mm-hmm. and 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 what you see of the creature is so minimal and so unimpressive. It just didn't seem that they had anything worked out as far as what the supernatural element of this show was going to be. That I found it. 
nigh unwatchable. Th- this vague notion that they were being chased through the the hull of this ship was so ham-handedly delivered, and it was so repetitive. Did you get that same feeling of like, how long can this possibly go on? Like, I thought they were going to find that medallion and get out of there, and there was going to be some more storyline. But no, it pretty much was just about them continuing to search through the ship and find some more people who were trapped in the hull. So, I mean, I guess it did have that trajectory. But the middle section was just mushy and had repeated lines over and over again. I don't know how many times Angie Harmon said something like, guys, guys, talk to me. Mm -hmm. Guys, what's going on? (laughs) Right. It was like they didn't seem to have anything. It's almost like they were just playing around shooting until they said, that'll be an episode, right? It was surprising what a huge bulk of the show was them uh, exploring the sunken ship, uh, and yet, uh, just the same, I liked it a lot more <laughs> than than the first Baywatch Nights episode, because uh, here you've got adventure and suspense and a monster, and so it's 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 less like a bad ripoff of a of a detective show and more like a a bad ripoff of Alien, uh, where you're at least like in some confined quarters and you're having an adventure for practically the whole thing because it's only the first, you know, it takes it's the first six minutes until they get there and then they're exploring room to room and we're waiting on something to jump out. Um, and so that's that's a more fun to watch thing to me. Uh, however, yes, very disappointing that we never got a good look at the creature. I thought at least they would have a mask and we would see its face if they didn't have a fully good suit or something. But it's like what happens is uh, it jumps up and you're sort of halfway seeing it from behind and it looks like maybe a guy wearing spandex with a few feathers stuck on there or something. It's like not even, (laughs) doesn't even look like an underwater rubbery fish scale texture. Well, his hand and looked then, rubbery and scary, and and he had like two stumpy fingers amongst long fingers, you know. Right. So it was like that's true. It had a good hand, and they showed that a few times. But that uh, I guess is what gave me the false sense of security that we were eventually going to see its face. But no, when it's finally up and out of the water, and somehow Mitch defeats it, that was a little unclear. But I don't know if he hung it on a hook or whatever. But somehow it's up there, and yet we don't get to see it. Uh, so that that was a letdown. You know, the uh, moment in a lot of movies, I guess I'll, I'll call it the cat scare, the the fake scare where, oh, it turns out it was just a cat that jumped out. Uh, the cat scare in this is um, uh, something seems to grab Griff. He wrestles around and gets pulled down in the water and then comes back up, and David Hasselhoff picks up some, uh, you know, rubbery hose or something and says, it's just some conduit. <laughs> and that's the... Uh, the let down there. Oh, yeah. You know how sometimes when you're walking along and you're wading through the water and then you get pulled down and grabbed and you have to wrestle and make your way back up and it's just a conduit. Uh, that's how conduits are. I would have appreciated that much more if it, he'd reached down and pulled out a cat. <laughs> right. Oh, it's just a cat. Oh, my God, Chris. What is that? What? Do you hear that? I don't hear anything. <laughs> oh! Whew. Oh. Whew. Just a cat. Oh, man. Oh, man. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, I, 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 it's funny that we disagree about which Baywatch Nights episode was better because I found the first one, uh, even though you're right that it was a much more typical thing, you know, yeah. like it was more average in terms of what it was trying to be. I thought the pleasures of how 
of how goofily it negotiated all these character introductions and the types of stories that we're building. I thought there was just so much more going on with it and more fun stuff to see. And I found the second one to be, I, I just think it could have done more interesting things with its runtime. That's true. It definitely could have done a lot more interesting stuff. But I think that it actually, the reason I was able to appreciate it a little bit is for its purity. Like to me, I was like, this is even better than some X-Files episodes because uh, on the X-Files episode, they're trying to give you a lot of information and tell you a lot of stuff, but it's bad and lame. On this, they're not even going through that pretense. They're just going through a haunted house for the whole thing, and so you get the at least the pleasure of going, when's it going to jump out for the whole thing instead of uh, spending half the show going, you know, let's do our research or, or uh, who's behind this or whatever. Yeah, I'll tip my hand that I'm no great lover of everything that the X-Files did. I thought there were pivotal episodes or unique episodes that were very good and that I enjoyed watching and it made me say I liked that show a lot but I was never a huge fan of necessarily every monster of the week style episode of the X-Files but I will say that one of the things that X-Files did do that this show didn't for me which is have that interesting idea or interesting character interaction or interesting way of approaching the creature or maybe even an interesting effect or an interesting bit of makeup or a cool set I felt like Baywatch Nights failed on all of those like (laughs) yeah it's true. I mean, again, I thought they were pretty neck and neck, but if I had to say which one I preferred, I, I thought the first one was more entertaining and more like a dose of, of it's like, give me a big old slice of Hasselhoff pie, please. Um, right. I thought that was that was more satisfying in that way. I expected the second one to be more fun to watch for me than it was. It turned out to be a, a bit more of a drag. Well, you could watch the rest of the season, and I think you'd probably get a lot more satisfying stuff when he is you know, either facing off with vampires or werewolves or whatever whatever he has to do. At the end of the show, he contradicts himself because, his, uh, you know, the, uh, uh, the paranormal expert friend is bothering him. Did you see it? Did you see it? And he says, I don't know what I saw. It could have been a crazed crew member. And then a moment later, he says, I don't know what it was, but I saw it. And, that, you know, in that moment, he's looking very much like, it seemed like it was a fish man, you know, I, but he had just said it could have been a crazed crew member, even though he saw it clearly, he pulled it out of the water and killed it or whatever. So is he, like he's part of a cover up. He doesn't want to tell us that 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 he saw a creature. Why, why, why would he say it could have been a crazed crew member if it couldn't have been a crazed crew member? There's no way to think about this show that doesn't require you to put more thought into it than they did. (laughs) (laughs) Right. Okay. So let's give our verdict. How did Baywatch Night stack up to Better Call Saul? Terrible. Not at all. I agree. It was was not good. Uh, Next week, we got to get another, we got to get some other system of of picking the spinoffs. All right. Hot talk. Hot talk. Hot talk.